0: So this evening, I want to talk about um, truth, truthfulness. We're kind of picking up the paramis for uh, each of us having a different take on them. And um, I really felt a passion of something I wanted to communicate to you about this one. I had no idea if I'll be able to, but, uh, the truth is I have this mind that just generates so many creative ideas and that's the good news. Um, But then it really has no idea of how to organize them. So we'll see what happens. Um, But I thought I would start just with a reference to one of the areas that is actually the hardest for us to tell the truth in, and we're kind of protected from it here now in retreat. But I found this um, New Yorker cartoon, and it shows a little kid, a child, sitting on a really big chair, legs kind of dangling, and the chair is in front of an even bigger desk with a really big adult behind the desk, and behind the adult it says, Internal Revenue Service. And the child is saying, 5% of my income is from lemonade, and the rest is from charity. (laughs) And I thought, this is an area where it's often challenging to tell the truth uh, about what's really happening. a couple of days ago, Gil and I were having a conversation and I was getting pretty excited uh, about a favorite topic, which is the responsibility of, of teachers to, it sounds like a no-brainer, but to try to embody the teachings as best we can in our own lives. and. <sighs> Uh, Gil asked a really interesting question. He said, yeah, but you know, how do you measure wisdom? And the implication being that, you know, wisdom is something pretty hard to quantify. And of course, we were talking about other people's wisdom. Our own was never in doubt. Um, but we were wondering, you know, how do you measure other people's wisdom? And What I discovered in doing some research is that the Buddha had actually a very simple test for measuring wisdom. And he said, if you can motivate yourself to do things that you really don't like doing, but that you know will wind up bringing you happiness, and if you can stop yourself from doing things that you very much like doing, but you know will cause you or somebody else harm or pain. To whatever degree you can do that, that's your degree of wisdom. And he got this criterion, it's, it's really simple, of course it's simple. Uh, Galileo said, all truths are easy to understand once they are discovered. The point is to discover them. Well, once he discovered this, um, we can see it's quite simple. He got this criterion for assessing exactly how much wisdom we have from his insight into the power of truthful or intentional action to create happiness or grief for us, pleasure or pain. It sounds so simple, it actually is very simple. It's a practical test for wisdom that can be applied to all levels of our experience from the most subtle levels of you know, the most refined meditative states to just the obvious levels of how we behave day to day. And so we'll look at some of these levels and how this works in this talk. So truth is a wise thing because it works. This is very practical. I think when I say simple, I really mean it's so practical. It makes a difference in our lives. Honesty is the best policy. And why is that? I think because it's so direct. It's so earthy. It's so uh, down to earth. Because when we're honest, we can look at ourselves directly. We can look at our own behavior. We can admit when we've made a mistake. And we can learn how to change at least some of our ways, so that we don't cause at least that particular kind of harm, again. But we do have to tell ourselves the truth about what we're really attached to. And do these things really make us truly happy and deeply peaceful or not? We do get addicted to things and substances and people because we believe we have to have them to be safe and comfortable and happy. And even if we know they might not really make us happy. Now here I have to bring in my favorite cartoon. I find a way to bring it in to a talk every year. Um, This time it's about the point of things that we may love even though we know they're not necessarily going to make us happy. So this is the cartoon. You kind of have to see it for it to work. It shows two snails talking to each other and up in the corner there's um, a scotch tape dispenser and one snail is saying to the other, I don't care if she is a tape dispenser. I love her. We have all, I have, fallen deeply in love with tape dispensers. We maybe even knew, right, that it was a tape dispenser, but so curvy, so cute. Or after sitting for so long, one student came in and said, and this was really a triumph for her because she'd been suffering a lot. And she said, I've had all these wonderful experiences. I've got this whole basket of pleasant experiences now. And then I went to dinner and I got a stomach ache and it just wrecked the whole thing. Now, she had a lot of awareness and was smiling at herself as she said this, but she was so honest. I need to hang on to my pleasant experiences. I'm afraid to suffer. I'm afraid to let them go. The proximate cause for this kind of honesty is feeling safe, feeling safe enough to tell the truth to tell the truth to ourselves, to tell the truth to our teachers, and this also means safe enough to face the loss, the loss of the imagined stability and security that we think we have. The Dharma is our safety. It really does give us that mirror that Gil was talking about last night, that path to show us how to learn about ourselves and and to really imagine the possibility of learning new skills and new ways of being. And it gives us a sense of, um, it's very uplifting, of creativity, of imagination, of possibility that you could have the courage, that we can have the courage that we could have the bravery, that we could actually try out new ways of being with experience. Okay, one more cartoon. It's, uh, I don't have the picture, but uh, there's a nice looking man and he's driving a car and he's speaking to the passenger next to him is a really scary-looking guy. He's got a mustache, and he's got a swastika tattooed on his forehead, and he's saying, you know, prison has really changed you, Mom. (laughs) We can try out new ways of being. Retreat can really change us. My understanding of the Buddha's early teachings on emptiness is that they're just so practical and they are entirely based on the understanding about our actions and their results. And I will talk some more about karma cause and effect um, in my next talk, but just for the purposes of this one, just simply understanding we do things, People do things, I mean, we do things, too, and there are consequences to these things we do. So, we have to have the courage to be really honest about our motivations, about what's behind the actions that we do, and also to be really honest about the actual results, the beneficial ones and the not so beneficial ones. And this kind of willingness or courage is called sila, integrity, wholeness. The willingness to open to both sides of what's true. Our honorable intentions and our less than honorable intentions. Um, Suzaki Roshi used to talk about The ability to have, we used to talk endlessly about plus and minus, plus and minus, but the expression that I really liked that I want to share with you, he talked about being able to have plus and minus in the same room. What do you think he meant by that? Plus and minus in the same room. Can love and hate peacefully coexist? in the same heart. If you have, any of you, a family member, a parent, a child, a partner, you know that love and hate can peacefully, well they may not peacefully coexist, but they definitely coexist. So, in the psychoanalytic tradition, the ability to acknowledge both sides of relationship. This plus and minus, the truth of the whole heart is called ambivalence. And it doesn't mean the ambivalence of you know, wobbling or oscillating back and forth and unable to decide. It means being able to hold two valences, two um, felt senses, two meanings. That, that are actually very, very different, and even in opposition. But to be able to have a heart wide enough, open enough, honest enough to include them both. So let's get back to the Buddha's test for a moment about truth and wisdom and see how it applies from the most obvious common sense uh, action level to the subtlest levels of what we do in our minds, in our sitting, in our, in our mind activities. For years, I really struggled to make sense of a confusing life, a life where I witnessed a couple teachers that I really loved doing things that I didn't love and and didn't actually know how to understand. Talk about attachment. When you have given your whole life to a teacher and really poured all of your energy and intelligence and, um, well, your life energy and love into living these teachings and sharing them, uh, with others, the best you can, believe me, you are definitely attached to the outcome it's just impossible not to be, especially when one of the teachers is was my beloved husband, so we were just karmically linked in every possible way of you know parenting and working and teaching together and and in that situation, there was so much at stake to lose that really everything mitigated against my telling myself the truth of what was happening. And I mean, the truth was actually too hard to bear. And I tell you this just so that you know, I really know what it's like, something about how hard it can be to be honest about what's really going on in our lives and about our intense investment in it, and our participation in it. Just one more cartoon. In this cartoon, the head of a company is speaking to a large group of employees, and they're all gathered together in her office. And she's saying, we are still the same great company that we've always been. It's just that we've ceased to exist. (laughs) Uh, From Adrian Rich. In lying to others, we end up lying to ourselves. We deny the importance of an event or a person and thus deprive ourselves of a part of our lives. Or we use one piece of the past or the present to hide or screen out another. Thus, we lose faith, we lose trust in even our own lives. An honorable human relationship, that is one in which two people have the right to use the word love, it's a process, delicate, violent, often terrifying for both persons involved. A process of refining the truths they can tell each other. And then she goes on, it's important to do this because it breaks down human self-delusion and isolation. It's important to do this because in so doing, we do justice to our own complexity. That is, to the fact that plus and minus are in the same room. It's important to do this because we can count on so few people to go that hard way with us. And here, because we have the blessing of sangha, we actually can count on, look around, so many people to go that hard way with us. It's like a kind of um, festival or celebration of our sometimes lonely daily practice to come here together like this. What helped me start to tell myself and others the truth was actually realizing that I was breaking the precepts. I was lying to protect somebody. I was lying to protect myself, too. So the Buddha's precepts helped, along with a 12-step program. And because I felt so childlike and bewildered, actually, by um, teachings being used to rationalize things I just couldn't accept, I turned to the Buddha's advice to his seven-year-old son. I thought this was something that I would be able to understand. And just imagine having a parent when you were seven years old who would tell you stuff like this. And, and here's what he said, and, and try not to like, turn away from listening because it seems so simple. In Zen we say a seven year old can understand it, but a 63 year old cannot fully put it into practice, or whatever age you are. So please listen with your third ear, the one that can hear how this simple teaching opens the mind door. That if we take it to heart, it really can take us outside of our mind house and um, to that land of darkness and frogs singing where spring comes and the grass grows by itself. It sounds so romantic, but how do we actually do this? So, what the Buddha said, it feels like it just the volume dropped. Can you hear me okay in back? Just nod or nod. Okay. Yeah, I know. So he told Rahula to use his thoughts, his words, and his actions as a mirror. And he said, in other words, you know, just as you would use the mirror to check and see if you've got, you know, a chocolate mustache on your face. Um, you uh, would, can use your actions as a way of learning whether there's a chocolate mustache on your mind. Uh, my granddaughter, Allie, is seven years old, and she's just learned that actually, you know, yeah, you get a chocolate mustache, and she's big enough to not want to go around with that on her face anymore. She didn't used to notice. Um, and the Buddha was also teaching Rahula, You can do the same thing. Just look inside your heart. And before you act, here's how you do it. Because that impure in your mind, I mean, that's kind of abstract for a seven-year-old. But he said, okay, here's how you do it. Before you do something, try to anticipate what will happen when you do it. What the results will be. You know, before you kick your brother, try to anticipate what will happen. He will cry, he will tell mommy, you will get in trouble. Before, oh, and then if you see that what you're going to do, I mean, is going to hurt somebody else or yourself, don't follow through with that. See if you can stop yourself learn how to stop yourself. If you couldn't, you know, if you really don't see anything wrong with it, it's okay, go ahead and do it. If, while you're doing it, you discover, oops, even though I didn't think it was gonna cause harm, it did. Well, then stop. Otherwise, go for it. You can continue. Then he said, Afterwards, if you see that, in spite of your best attention, intention, some long-term harm did happen, something you didn't anticipate, wasn't obvious right away, but it became clear this wasn't a good idea because of what happened, then you're supposed to consult with somebody else, somebody you trust. And... Um, just get some perspective on what you've done and how not to do it again, and then promise not to do it again. Now, can you, again, can you just, I mean, the kindness of teaching a young child how not to be ashamed to tell the truth about their mistakes. Can you imagine if you grew up feeling safe enough Just breathing that clean air of forgiveness and and transparency, knowing from an early age that it's okay to be a learner in this life, that there's no reason to be embarrassed to share mistakes with people that you respect and trust, and being taught that Even if you think that you can hide things, maybe if you can even hide things from them that you think are bad, you can't really hide them from yourself. And eventually, um, in order to bear the cognitive dissonance or the self-punishment of guilt from living a lie, you'll have to start um, lying to yourself. No, I didn't kick her. I really didn't. I watched, well, no. Um, and this kind of training in honesty is what's called the Vasudhi Maga, the path of purification. Now, Purification, in Buddhist terms, is almost kind of a technical word. It's It really means um, it's not about a self that we purify. It's about experiencing something so purely, so completely, uh, that there's nothing left over. There's nothing we have to add on or subtract from the experience. So we say that um, in forgiveness practice, we often draw the distinction between um, the person who did the act and the action itself so that we can have some compassion for the person even if we can't forgive the behavior. Uh, But what if if we just take it a step further and realize this really isn't about the purification of the self. What if we go back a couple nights to Adrian's beautiful talk about the skandhas and realize who is there to forgive in these rivers of form and feeling and perception, and which skanda did it actually? Form says, "Not me. I didn't do it." Feeling says, nope, not me. Perception says, no, I I didn't do it either. So okay, will the real skanda stand up? It just doesn't happen. The guilty skanda does not turn itself in. So instead of being the judge and looking for someone to blame, we can focus on deconstructing these streams, these selves, simply by seeing how they arise and pass away, born and die, resurrect, reborn, and fall away again. What's important is how we live the actions themselves, so practical. And our judgments or remorses or regrets can teach us, actually, to learn, oh, yeah, that was a mistake. When you're about to do something, one question you can ask yourself is, how long will I think about this after I do it? Um, And we can contemplate. Our sila, our goodness, not as a way of just like bolstering our sagging self esteem, um, but as a way of rejoicing in our growing honesty and courage and strength. This is a parami, after all, a spiritual strength that we're cultivating. And my grandson, Owen, turned five, and he got—he um, passed his big karate test. He told me on the phone uh, yesterday morning that he got a double orange belt, and that means that he can be a lion now. He's graduating from the Tigers. Like you, he has practiced, no, really, he has practiced these disciplines of um, fairness, respect, and discipline, I guess that's the other one. And he can rejoice. And you know, we don't give out stripes and belts after one week or two weeks or three weeks uh, of retreat. Um, I don't know which Skanda would receive it if we did, but instead of getting caught up in our identity of being good or bad or the As our composure and clarity inevitably fluctuate, we can focus our attention where it really matters, on just seeing how our actions and approaches um, give birth to ourself, and how it arises, and how every single time it's like getting up and just walking into a glass door. We can't see it, but out. So with mindfulness, with honesty about our intentions, our addictions, our addictions to self, um, and about honesty about our impact on ourselves and others, um, it's really huge. And it requires huge courage, because usually, this is exactly where we hide out. Where we do the activity of disappearing <laughs> and we die of embarrassment or shame innerly and this is the awesome part. this is really what I want to communicate to you that is so it 's so liberating it 's so freeing really that the path of purification of uh, stepping out of our mind house is just this. The Buddha actually praised the honest acceptance of responsibility or blame as something good on our path. Um, Responsibility, I think, more than blame. But, in fact, he went so far as to say this is the means for progress on the spiritual path. He told Rahula, that recognizing your mistakes and admitting them to others was the path of purification of thought, word, and deed. During the precept ceremony um, in the Korean Zen tradition where we, I told you, we took the precepts, and when we took the precepts, we did a chant and our teacher lit a maksa, incense, on our arm. And it burned down while we chanted so that we would have always have a mark. We could never forget that we took the precepts. Um, this is five and this is ten here. Um, and we would say, it's very archaic but beautiful, um, on account of my beginningless, greed, anger, and ignorance, born of my body, speech, and thought. Since beginningless time, I now acknowledge and purify it all. And we would just say this over and over again. Um, All the evil karma ever committed by me, since of old, since beginningless time. And there was something about just that sense of, The endlessness that bodhisattva vow, greed, hatred, and ignorance, attraction, aversion, indifference rise endlessly. I vow to release them. The many beings, I vow to free them. Something really Just very simple and amazing that truthfulness is the prerequisite for wisdom. Um, they say that happiness is the pro- in the text happiness is the proximate cause for concentration, but I think safety is the proximate cause for being able to relax and feel our composure, and it's certainly. Um, a prerequisite for truthfulness. He also said that the highest um, principle was this precept against lying, for all the reasons that we've been talking about. And that question, what are you keeping outside of awareness? It's very hard to know, of course, by definition, right? What are you not paying attention to? what are you keeping outside of awareness? It's so, it's so important because whatever we keep outside of our practice actually gains power. It gets strengthened. So when we make a parami of fessing up to these uncomfortable truths, the truth as a whole can flow in. And we really do have the power to affect our experience of pleasure or pain from the Dhammapada. People who recognize their own mistakes and change their ways, quote, illumine the world like the moon when freed from a cloud. And this brings compassion, too, because the more clearly we can see, the more we want to avoid harming, to let go of clinging, stress even the most subtle tension in the heart. And the more we free our hearts, the more we can be of benefit to beings. There was a Zen master called Banke. And after he passed away, a blind man who was one of his students said this. I love this story. He lived near Banke's temple, and he told a friend Since I'm blind, I can't watch a person's face. So I must judge her character by the sound of her voice. Ordinarily, when I hear somebody congratulate another upon their happiness or success, I also hear a secret tone of envy. When condolence is expressed for the misfortune of another, I hear a little trace of pleasure or satisfaction, as if the one condoling was actually glad there was something left to gain in their world. In all my experience, however, Banke's voice was always sincere. Whenever he expressed happiness, I heard nothing but happiness. And whenever he expressed sorrow, Sorrow was all I heard. So whether you see the truth however you perceive the truth, as the truth of these rivers of streaming being, no one who can be called the self, whether you see the truth as being this uh, Buddha's test for wisdom. its So practical, I love this. How stuck we are to the things that cause suffering and how free we are to choose things that are of love and happiness. It does all boil down to our taking our seats as the noble sons and daughters of the Buddha, the queens and kings taking our vajra seat to practice these diamond truths that Gil talked about last night, telling ourselves the truth about how we really are, how it really is, being honest about the tension or stress that we may still be carrying, being willing to let it go, being willing to stay present and awake, to be patient enough to see it pass, to just see it fall away, cease to be. It will inevitably. And to walk the path of mature and responsible honesty, no easy walk to freedom," as Nelson Mandela said. This is from Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman, um, some of you might know, he was a real mentor to Martin Luther King Jr. and to Maya Angelou and many others. And I knew about him because he was the Dean of um, the Marsh Chapel at Boston University. He was considered one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. And he actually met with um, Gandhi in 1936, and um, his best-known work really laid the foundation for the nonviolent civil rights movement. When he died in 1981, his loss was keenly felt in Boston and probably all over the world. He said, there's something in every one of you that waits and listens for the sound of the genuine in yourself. It's the only true guide you will ever have. And I love this phrase, the sound of the genuine. It's the only true guide you will ever have. So we too um, have this sonar, I think this inner sonar for the sound of the genuine, and we can recognize, we too can hear so much in each other's voices, in the voices that we listen to in our own hearts, and uh, all that we've done here together, uh, what we deeply know now is how to drop beneath these waves of doubt and outgrown beliefs about our own um, exile from the highest spiritual truths, uh, from the sound of the genuine, And, and maybe celebrate this newfound sense of having a right to your truth, to your knowing, and to the trust and faith and confidence in that, um, and this this too is, is from the Buddha. The Buddha talked about um, finding, preserving the truth, discovering the truth out of direct experience, and how to really know and trust what you know. My teacher... Uh, my first Zen teacher, Desan Senim, He talked about great faith, which is that trust in the truth. And he explained it this way. And some of you may remember this. He held up one finger, little finger, and he said, can you see this? Can you see this? I think everybody here." You can see this." And he said, that's great faith. Just trusting your perception, trusting what you see. He says, we're living in truth. We have to believe our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind, that this is the truth. This is it. And the last story that... um, I want to tell you is about my other Zen teacher, another Zen teacher, uh, Kobunchino Roshi, who taught me this uh, during a session where I didn't meditate at all. Uh, I was flown across the country by the Sangha to babysit for a member of the Sangha who had three children under the age of five. Uh, to allow her to attend retreat and I think the feeling was I was the only one who could stand to live with three children under the age of five for a full week uh, alone with them. And it was a pretty intense retreat. I mostly, I mean I remember fun things like swinging in the hammock and um, reading stories, but I also remember those 16 little meals every single day. And the nine month old, who wasn't fully weaned, and what would happen at bedtime, and desperately, you know, even trying to nurse her, but of course she knew the truth <laughs> and uh, <laughs> would have none of it. So um, at the end of the, the week of the session, um, I did get to have uh, Doksan to have an interview with the teacher, and it took place. We walked down away from the house, away from the children, and I think the mom was back by then. And we sat by a dried river stream bed and talked. And talked about my practice and what was going on in my life, and he listened. And then. Uh, There was just a moment when, you know, the meeting, the interview was over. My 15 minutes were up, and he stood up, and he had been sitting on the ground, and he stood up, and he brushed off his robes, and he said, uh, this is it. And it was said very casually, you know, this is it. Like, okay, our interview is over. But because it was my teacher, and because I had been practicing so hard that week, when he said, "This is it," I also knew he meant, "This is it. There is no other practice. there is no other place where the truth is to be found. It wasn't up in the zendo more than in the house uh, when Lily was screaming at bedtime. it wasn't um." going to happen in some realization after our meeting because we had a meeting. And it wasn't anything huge and awesome and startling and amazing. It was just standing up and brushing off the robes and understanding that when we're present and awake, and honest about what's happening, every moment is it. This is it, and this is it, and this is it. The Buddha asked us to be a light to ourselves, to really hear in our own hearts, um, the sound of the genuine. This is from Vimala Thakar. She says, if we cannot be a light unto ourselves in the beginning of our practice, then there's no chance that our practice will result in being a light unto ourselves at the end. We have to be a light unto ourselves, and sometimes brush aside the lights of other people, however dazzling bright and brilliant they may be. Ours may be a tiny, dim, little thing, but we live by it. So let's just sit for a minute. There's something in every one of us that waits and listens for the sound of the genuine. It's the only true guide we will ever have.